It's the 16th century, and in a tiny village in Hungary, people are exchanging whispers about something dreadful. Stories spread about the woman who lives up the hill, the countess in the castle. They say people are being tortured up there, and some of the castle's staff are ending up dead. In the village, parents begin hiding their children. The castle's occupant is Countess Bathory. She's wealthy, powerful, beautiful, but the people below the castle also suspect she's a vicious, sadistic killer with an unquenchable thirst for gore. She is the original and the ultimate bloodthirsty babe. When a woman kills, we often try to make sense of what happened by assigning her to a category, the angel of death, the black widow, and so on. But do those labels help or hinder our understanding of what really happened? I'm Tori Telfer, a true crime writer fascinated with why women kill and how society reacts to them when they do. In this episode, the last in the series, the sadistic murderess, the woman who kills and enjoys it. This is Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, a podcast presented by CBS All Access. Don't forget to watch Why Women Kill, a new television series about three women driven to commit murder. Binge watch all episodes now exclusively on CBS All Access. So far in this series, the labels that we've used to explore women who kill— They center around motives that we may not condone, but we can at least understand. They describe women who kill for money, for power, for love and jealousy. None of those desires explains what motivates the archetype of this episode. She's a killer that we're calling the bloodthirsty babe. This is the woman who kills for the thrill of it, whether she has a literal thirst for blood and torture, or finds sexual gratification in the act of killing, or becomes a serial murderer just as violent as her male counterparts, stories of bloodthirsty babes are tabloid-perfect narratives that shock us with their brutality and undercut our assumptions about why women kill. The actual number of women who admit to enjoying some element of the killing is quite rare. Elizabeth Gurian is an associate professor of criminal justice and criminology at Norwich University. Her research on female serial killers extends from the early 1900s to today. And I was able to find maybe roughly one a decade women who openly admitted that they enjoyed the killing. And so when there is a case, it becomes hugely sensationalistic. It's bad enough that these women are killing, period. But when we get even a hint that the woman suspected of murder might have enjoyed the kill, it's horrific. What we know about female serial killers is they actually generally commit bloodless crimes, um, so poison or over-medicating. And yet it's more fascinating, perhaps, to us to look at these women who are doubly deviant. So not only committing murder, but in a way that we would never expect from a traditional woman. And because of that, we may spend less time asking why she kills 
and more time obsessing over how she kills. Yeah, the bloodthirsty babe is a trope that um, resonates throughout literature, isn't it? And our main example, or perhaps historical example, is the Countess Bathory. Dr. Helen Gavin is a criminal psychologist and principal lecturer at the University of Huddersfield in England. When it comes to cases of female sadists, that's women who enjoy inflicting pain, she often references the legend of Countess Elizabeth Bathory. The Countess is a mythological creature almost. She's almost like a fairy tale. Elizabeth Bathory was born in 1560 to a rich and powerful family in Hungary. She was raised in a world of privilege, while the peasants around her had zero rights. She was brought up in uh, circumstances that suggested that people around her were worthless, only worth what they could do for her. As a child, it's likely that Elizabeth witnessed a lot of violence. She would have attended public executions and observed everyday acts of cruelty from nobles against the peasants who served them. It was common for Hungarian nobility to be cruel to their servants, but as Elizabeth grew older, she took it to the next level. She gathered four accomplices. Together, they tortured peasants like it was some kind of macabre pastime. Sometimes she would tailor her punishment according to what that servant had done. So, for example, in those days, noble ladies were sewn into their dresses. If a peasant girl pricked her accidentally, the young girl would have pins and needles inserted into her finger until they dropped off. Or say a servant was caught stealing a coin. Elizabeth would order that the coin be heated up and the servant would be branded with it. It was said that the Countess would sometimes beat and torture her peasants so much she'd end up covered in blood herself. She was doing it sadistically. She was getting some kind of pleasure out of doing this quite clearly. But how can a woman be so callous, so deviant, that she can torture and kill another human being and like it? How can anyone, really? Dr. Dawn Flugrad can give us some perspective. She's a psychologist and has studied hundreds of violent female offenders. Only a handful were diagnosed with a sadistic disorder. Sadistic women have at least one thing in common. Part of the psychological components of their assaults is they dehumanize the victim. They somehow start to believe that the victim actually is deserving what they're doing to them. That might help us understand Bathory a little more, given what we know about how she viewed her servants. They convince themselves that the victim deserves to be punished for some reason. And in my research, the woman is able to then um, have no cognitive dissonance or feel bad about what they're doing to the other person. What I see in Elizabeth is someone who was probably legally insane, but had nothing to stop her. That's Dr. Helen Gavin again. Bathory was eventually stopped though in an indirect way. An investigation was launched into all the allegations against her, but the Countess was rich and well-connected. Her family made a secret deal with the investigator. He could look into her crimes as long as she herself never went on trial. They said they didn't want to have a public trial because it would have been bad press, presumably, or whatever the term they used in 16th century Hungary. 
In fact, a letter from her son-in-law to the lead investigator spells this out. One line reads, public punishment would shame us all. Her accomplices, however, were interrogated, and some 300 witnesses came forward with rumors and suspicions about what exactly the Countess had done. The stories turned up by this investigation are why historians can speculate about Bathory's role in the murder and torture of peasants at her castle. Some said that she killed between 30 to 50 people. Others claimed, no, it was more like 200, then 300. One young woman said she'd seen a ledger with 650 victims listed, though that ledger was never found. Three of Elizabeth's accomplices were executed. A fourth was tossed into prison. And in 1610, Countess Bathory herself was locked away. She was confined to a windowless room in her own castle. She died four years later. She was 54 years old. It's been more than 400 years since terrible rumors of Countess Bathory's torture first sprang up, but she fascinates us to this day. Her blood-soaked legend is embedded in goth culture, black metal music, and even in horror shows featuring major pop stars. But we don't need to reach that far back in history to see how stories of bloodthirsty babes still keep us spellbound. It goes down in Australian history as one of the more bizarre cases we've had, I think. Dr. Belinda Morrissey is the author of When Women Kill, Questions of Agency and Subjectivity, and she's a lecturer of media theory in Australia. And so we get this court case in Queensland. It could only happen in Queensland. If you know Australia, you would know. It's nighttime in October, 1989. Four women in their early 20s have just left a popular lesbian club and hopped into a car. They're driving around because one of the women is looking for a victim. They picked up some drunk fellow wandering home, clinging to lampposts. He got in the car thinking he was going to have sex with them. They carted him off to some park. He got undressed and she stabbed him to death. 27 times. She stabbed the victim 27 times using two knives. She was caught soon after. She didn't say anything at all in her own defense. She pled guilty and went to jail. Then, this story gets even more bizarre. The three remaining women were now on trial for their own role in what happened that night. They blamed the original killer for everything. They said that she had them in a spell, an actual spell, because, they argued, she was a vampire. And she needed the blood to drink. And she'd been drinking blood from pigs and sheep and what have you for a while, but apparently it wasn't good enough and she had to have the blood of a person. This bloodthirsty babe did consider herself to be a vampire. Her girlfriend at the time, one of the three women on trial, admitted that she would cut herself to allow her vampire lover to drink her blood. The story overtook the news. A lesbian vampire was in jail for murder, and her accomplices were now on trial. It was too salacious to pass up. Trial told of blood-drinking frenzy. Vampire controlled my mind. Court told. Vampire killer set out to scare. Everyone was consumed by the story of the lesbian vampire killer. How could they not? 
The details seemed ripped straight from a Pulp Fiction paperback. The crime didn't sound like real life. And yet, it was. The court itself was forced to consider the argument. The Supreme Court there is discussing issues of vampirism, whether or not she always wore black, whether or not uh, she really did need blood to drink. Fortunately, sanity prevailed. After a three-week trial, two of the women were found guilty of murder and manslaughter and sent to prison. Belinda Morrissey wonders if anyone bothered to look beyond the wild details of the case and figure out what actually motivated this woman to kill. Does she enjoy doing this? Does she want to do this? Well, we don't know because we've got this weird story of vampirism overlaying it. The facts of this case are so over the top, they override any curiosity we might have about what was really going on inside this woman's head. For instance, the killer told psychiatrists she'd been abused by her grandfather when she was young. Controversially, others said she suffered from dissociative identity disorder. While neither of these facts necessarily motivated her deviant behavior, they should certainly be considered by anyone trying to understand her case. Here's psychologist Dawn Flugrad again. We don't know a lot about what makes somebody turn to sadism or being aroused to pain, torture, humiliation. But looking at female sadists, what we've seen is that they're generally younger when they start offending, and the offenses could go on for a number of years before they're detected. They've also had adverse childhood experiences in their background, so things like physical abuse or neglect, or they also came from dysfunctional, unstable childhood homes. It's a clue, but there are plenty of people with terrible histories, and most of them do not act out sadistically. So we don't always know what makes people behave one way or the other. We understand very little about why a woman might find pleasure in committing murder. And so we focus on the drama instead. In the Australian case, there was also a sexual component to the story. The victim was lured by the killer and her accomplices. He thought he was about to have sex with at least one of them. He stripped naked and ended up dead. There are countless narratives that combine sex with violence, and it's one more way the bloodthirsty label can be used to frame a woman's crimes. Let's look at what happened in the summer of 1983. It's June, and we're in Texas. A woman and her boyfriend are high on drugs. They decide to visit an acquaintance in Houston. They're planning to rob him. And it may be one of the cases where we get this idea of the sexualized female killer. We heard from Elizabeth Gurian earlier. She's an associate professor of criminal justice. It's three in the morning in Texas, and the couple are inside the house. Things get out of hand fast. There's a struggle, and the boyfriend hits the homeowner in the head with a hammer. The girlfriend follows suit. She strikes the same man with a three-foot-long pickaxe. She hits him over 20 times. She then notices there's someone else in the room, a woman trying to hide. The girlfriend attacks her. Police find the pickaxe lodged in that victim's chest. 
These facts alone are disturbing enough, but Elizabeth Gurian says that one small detail changes the way we think of this woman's motives. She claimed to experience sexual gratification during the murders. This is what becomes part of her media narrative. The killer said that during the attack, she would orgasm with every strike of the pickaxe. She also acknowledged her history of drug use and sex work, which stretched back to when she was a young girl. She owned up to it. She admitted to a history of drug use and prostitution. She admitted to feeling sexual pleasure during these crimes. Professor Gurian wonders if those facts sealed her fate in court. They certainly did with the media. When you look through her case, they actually said that this element, her sexual gratification from the murders, showed a, quote, most dangerous aberration of character. And then there's almost a fixation on that, um, where every media narrative up until she was executed brought up that point. She was killed by lethal injection in 1998. As for her boyfriend, he died in prison. We are fascinated with the bloodthirsty babe archetype, partly because it's such a novelty. But because society has such a hard time believing that women can be bloodthirsty, these biases can hinder police investigations. In the early 2000s, police in Mexico City realized a serial killer was murdering senior citizens. One of the main assumptions of police and news reports were that the killer was a man, was middle-aged, was brilliant. This is Susana Vargas Cervantes. She wrote a book about what happened. It's called The Little Old Lady Killer, The Sensationalized Crimes of Mexico's First Female Serial Killer. This killer would target seniors who lived alone, enter their houses, and either strangle or beat them to death. They thought only a man could perform that, only a man could have that strength. Police dedicated a full task force to find this man, this little old lady killer. Nicknamed then in Spanish, El Mataviejitas. As the death count mounted, some evidence was found, fingerprints, crucially. Then an eyewitness reported seeing someone fleeing one of the crime scenes. They described the suspect as a masculine-looking woman dressed as a nurse. And then, because of the assumptions of what a serial killer is, police started looking for a man dressed in women's clothing. The eyewitness description helped police flesh out their profile. They believed that this male killer was posing as a government health worker and winning over his victim's trust. They were wrong about the sex, of course, and it meant police ended up wasting time chasing the wrong theories. At one point, they rounded up groups of male sex workers who dressed in women's clothing. All were released after no fingerprints matched. By the fall of 2005, as many as 24 deaths were reported. Police warned women over 60, especially if they lived alone, to be careful. So there were many pamphlets distributed saying, if you are um, an elderly woman, do not let anyone that you don't know in your house. The killer was finally caught in January of 2006. A tenant came home and saw his elderly landlady slumped over, dead. Next, he noticed someone hurrying away from the house. He ran after that someone while calling for help. 
two nearby police officers arrested the suspect on site. They'd later discover that the landlady had been strangled with a stethoscope. To everyone's surprise, the killer wasn't a man at all. She was a woman with a colorful history. She had once been a luchadora, a masked lucha libre wrestler. That was all any journalist needed to hear. Newspapers read the next day, she's a woman and she's a wrestler. Wrestler is caught as the alleged Mata Viejitas. It gave media the perfect sensationalist story. The killer herself blamed her resentment towards her own mother for her crimes. She confessed to a single murder, but was convicted of killing 16. Police believe she may have murdered more than 40. She received the longest sentence ever given in Mexico for murder, 759 years in prison. The bloodthirsty babe archetype comes in handy when we want to indulge in scandalous, outrageous murder stories. That these killers can be female wrestlers, lesbian vampires, sexual sadists, or depraved noblewomen, it only adds to the twisted allure of their crimes. But if we're too focused on the blood, we don't get the whole truth. That's what happened in Countess Bathory's case. Over 100 years after her death, the wildest rumor of all sprang up about the Countess's crimes. It's a legend that persists to this day, that she bathed regularly in the blood of 600 virgin peasant girls. Apparently, it was to keep her skin looking young. A literal bloodbath. But it's simply not true. That rumor was started by a scholar who stumbled across her story a century later and decided to add a little color. Maybe he thought vanity was a more palatable motive than bloodthirst. Or maybe he just wrote what he thought people wanted to read. She's been dead for well over 400 years, but she'll never live that tale down. Women kill for many complicated reasons. But as a society, we love to assign uncomplicated labels to them. The Black Widow, the woman who snapped, the angel of death, the jealous lover, the Bonnie who kills with a partner, and the bloodthirsty babe. At times, the labels ring true, but more often, they gloss over reality. It may be that these labels we assign say more about our fascination with Hollywood-style villainesses than about why real women can turn into murderers. In the end, we may never really know why women kill. I'm Tori Telfer, and thank you for joining me for the final episode of Why Women Kill, Truth, Lies, and Labels, a podcast presented by CBS All Access. And remember, if you haven't had a chance to catch it yet, watch Why Women Kill, a new television series that you can now binge watch in its entirety exclusively on CBS All Access. It's the story of three women driven to kill, 
all living in the same house, but at different moments in history. It stars Lucy Liu, Jennifer Goodwin, and Kirby Howell-Baptiste. Go check it out by signing up for a free trial at cbs.com slash whywomenkill.